Welcome to Behind the DM Screen. It is December of 2018, and we are three DMs talking about our games and help each other out. I am Jeff Greiner, and with me is Sam Dillon. Hello. And Michael W. Shea. That's not his middle initial. Yeah, I don't know where the W is. <laughs> no, no. That stands for wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's because you're amazing. <laughs> No, that doesn't work either. Okay. <laughs> All right. So we each get 15 minutes on the clock to talk about our games. And then with whatever time is left, people can ask us questions or, or answer our you know questions if we need some help on some things or whatever. And because I was last last time, I am first this time. So 15 minutes on the clock and I am starting. So uh, unlike I think last time, I've actually gotten to play some D&D since Yay. we last played. Like, like before, I, we were playing, right? We were playing a lot of Torg and whatever, um, and that was going really well. But it's nice to get back to D&D after like a month and a half off uh, for various scheduling reasons or whatever. And ironically, um, we had just enough players. Usually if I don't get at least four players and plus the DM, um, then we play something else, right? So we had four players. It was going to go brilliantly. And then one of the players gets there and we're about to start and he starts rifling through his bag. And he's like, oh, shoot, I forgot my character sheet at home, but I'm only like, you know, 10 minutes away. I'll just run over, get it real quick and come back and you guys can go ahead and start without me. So he goes, he gets in his car and he does that. And then his car suddenly has issues. <laughs> he has to take it into the shop and he never comes back. <laughs> <laughs> like I saw him the next day when he came back to get his backpack, right? Um, so, I mean, now everything's fine. Rob's okay. Um, you know, so, so that, that all turned out all right. But he wasn't there for the entire session. And we only played D&D that session because he was supposed to be there. Um. But it turned out it was a really combat light um, session. Mm-hmm. It was more story focused and interaction and role playing focused and exploration a little bit and that kind of stuff. And so um, all of the sort of key players, key characters to advance the bits of the story that needed to be advanced were present. Um, so it worked out okay. Because, like, the main reason that you need sort of a critical mass of players, in my experience, when playing D&D is when there's combat. Because if you don't have enough players, then, then they don't have the, the breadth of support and, and abilities to, you know, stay alive. So being combat light, it actually kind of worked out okay. Um, the previous session that they had played, they had infiltrated Minzo Baranzan. Um, they had met Matron Mother Bainray. They had met Jarlaxle. They had gotten the assistance of all these people to sneak into Sorcerer in order to retrieve Gromf Bainray's um, grimoire as per Out of the Abyss. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, because the only reason the mat- Matron Mother um, ben- Bainray was helping them was because she wanted to be able to blame them for the whole thing, you know? Hey, they're running through the tunnels uh, around Minzo Baranzan carrying this grimoire. Clearly, they're the ones responsible for bringing all the demon lords here because it would be an embarrassment if her brother had done it, which is what had happened. <laughs> right? So she, they come out of the, the tunnel, the, the, the sanctum, Gromp's sanctum, 
um, with the book. She's out there with like a small army of drow. Um, there is literally one round of combat. And then Jarl Axel appears in an alcove in the shadows and says, hey, come over here. And because I thought it was a fun Jarl Axel sort of thing to do is he took off his big wide brimmed hat that he always wears and he stretch- yeah. he stretches it out into a dimensional gate. Mm-hmm. Right. So they jump through his hat, uh, <laughs> you know, in order to escape. Uh, and then he jumps through after him and it takes him to the secret tunnel that takes them back to where they need to go. And so they escape with the, the help of the, the literal walking deus ex machina that is Jarlaxle. Um, because he wants to see the, 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 this whole thing play out. He wants to see the demon lords destroyed and defeated. But he puts the caveat on them of um, when you do this thing that you think is going to get rid of the demon lords, it can't be done here in Minzo Baron's end. Uh, and their guide, who was sent with them, the, the apprentice of Vizarin, the drow who's coming up with this whole plan, um, says, you know, I've been having second thoughts. I'd, I'd rather you not destroy my home. Um, you know, I've, I've been out of that place for a long time and I hate a lot of those people, but it's still home. Please don't, please don't, you know, summon all of the demon Lords into my, into my hometown and and destroy it. Um, but Vizarin is like, oh no, it totally needs to happen there. Wink, wink, because I want to see that those darn people burn. Right. Um, so they, they, they decided to do the good thing, the, of not destroying the city full of mostly evil people, but some innocent people. Um, and so on the way back um, to to uh, Vizarin's tower, they're like, well, we still got to like plant the the dark, the heart of darkness is called it, which is the cent- center piece of the ritual that calls all the demon lords that they were supposed to plant in Minzo Baron's end. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got to find some place to plant it. So as they're thinking through places to plant it, um, Vizarin's apprentice shares. Well, I, I happen to know this location. And as they're discussing this location, um, they're walking down this long um, drab. It was, so this this whole tunnel was shaped by like stone shape by Vizarin over over long long periods of time. So it is the most boring, flat, featureless tunnel with no branches and or anything going off of it anywhere. Right. And so it's just and you walk through it for three days, no features, just a straight shot tunnel that goes from his tower to Minzo Baron's end through a secret tunnel. Uh, but all of a sudden they they're walking along and there's like this wall of a brightly colored like circus tent. Uh, and so they they check it out and they are real cautious and they eventually poke their head in and and notice that in the inside of it is it is, of course, larger on the inside um, as these things tend to be. And there's this table with a giant spread of food and it's all, you know, it's got uh, cushions for them to sit on at the table and, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then a mouth appears, a magic mouth appears on the table and, and bids them to come inside and, and, you know, enjoy the food and wait for the master to arrive or whatever. Uh, so this is actually a part where I brought in a segment from the Rod of Seven Parts adventure. Um, this is one of the sort of side quests or, or sort of sidetrack um, encounters that they can have with a Kirin. Uh, are you familiar with the Kirin creature? Yeah. Yes. So there are these like lawful, good, celestial, like Eastern, I think they're Eastern, uh, East Asian, um, like almost like unicorn lizard things with extra like hairy manes and whatever. Um, and they're, yeah, so so this is an encounter that's in the Rod of Seven Parts. And basically the Kieran shows up and is like, hey, so do you know what this Rod of Seven Parts is thing that you have? Like, do you really know what you're dealing with here? And they're like, oh, we have an idea, but they didn't know the history. So they get some of the background and the history of what this thing is and what the larger sort of meta arc of the campaign has been this whole time that they didn't know as clearly. Um, 
and, and then he's like, well, so what are you planning on doing with it now? Like, the Queen of Chaos wants it. Are you going to give it to her? Are you going to run around with it yourself and, like, you know, do whatever? Or, what, you know, what's the plan? And so um, when, they, when he finds out, oh, the plan is to use it to, you know, hopefully keep uh, Miska or, as, as I've deemed it in the campaign, Miska the Wolf Spider, who's the, the big, horrible, chaotic, destructive creature that was locked away by all the gods in Rada Seven Parts, which is basically the same story as Thera's done. Uh, so I've decided they're all the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, the, you know, he's like, oh, well, uh, your, your plan is to, to thwart Miska slash Therizdun slash the unspeakable one from the, the Freeport tr- series or whatever. Like, I, I just made them all the same thing. Um, that's great. So you can have it. You can keep it. You've got all this information. And if you want, you can keep the tent too, right? It's just a little, you flip a coin, it turns into a big circus tent with furnishings in it. The food was something he summoned, so it doesn't come with food. Um, so anyway, yeah, so, so they, they had that little encounter, then they, they teleported off to this little side trek to, uh, to plant the heart of darkness into this sort of, this, the, the cavern that I made up that the apprentice suggested is, um, a big ice cavern. It was, um, originally like a dwarven, um, city, but it was, now it's just frozen dwarven ruins and and by frozen i mean like it's a big empty cavern but the walls are lined with the ruins of of this dwarven city but like embedded in the ice Mm -hmm. um so you can see sort of see the bodies and the buildings and stuff through the ice but they're encased solidly in the ice uh and now the the cavern is being ruled by a white dragon and its yeti minions Mm. Uh, and so they found, you know, they, they figured out, they, they moved sort of a little ways in before they were noticed, and they just used sort of some um, scorching rays and whatever and, and melted a little hole, stuck the heart down into the ice, and then let it refreeze over and got out of there, figuring, hey, that'll be fine. There'll be a big demon lord fight, and the yetis and the dragon will be there to, you know, distract things and do some damage to that nobody really cares. Um, so that'll be fine. And then they... they Went back to the tower. They gave the grimoire over to Vizarin. Vizarin's all, yeah, great. I need a few days to sort of look this over. They're like, okay, we're going to go back home and wait for you there. And when you send a message, then we'll come back. Um, and as soon as they show up back at home, which is the, the Citadel sort of military island uh, base of theirs that they're part of, uh, a djinn shows up. is like, hey, uh, so my master wants to talk to you, but you need to be in a secure place. They go to a secure place. The master shows up. This master is this character, Khadij, who is also from the Rod of Seven Parts adventure. Uh, and they they get to meet him, and he's like, hey, so the next piece of the rod uh, is in this place called Berlin, and you should probably go get it sooner rather than later because it's under assault by the, the forces of the Queen of Chaos, and if you don't go get it, they're going to. Uh, so now they've got a little side trek to go on <laughs> to, to get to Berlin. Uh, and they managed to, through uh, some some conveniently located teleportation circles, get themselves close to Berlin. Um, Berlin, I was inspired a little bit by the, the trailers for the Mortal Engines uh, story, so I made it a mobile city. Uh, and basically, it was it's on a giant platform that's flying through the sky, suspended on big, giant, like, Zeppelin-like balloons. Right, and it just goes in a constant pattern in a big circle, and everything within that circle is is the the Duchy of Berlin, and it is the the Duke of Berlin's job uh, to protect the Duchy of Berlin, and most of the inhabitants are uh, bear folk that I took from the uh, the Midgard setting. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and so there's a bunch of bear folk there, and the Duke of Berlin is up in the city, and they, they actually meet some bear folk, and they help him get to the city by, uh, here, get in this, this basically what, it, what is a magical hot air balloon, and it floats up, and then there's, like, other bear folk in the city who, like, reach out with big hooks and just sort of hook onto the balloons and drag them down into the city. Hmm. Um, so that was fun. Uh, and then they find that the city of Berlin is actually still, like, a f- almost fully functional modern city. It has power and, and there's vehicles driving around and skyscrapers with lights on and all this kind of stuff. And what they discover is that when the sixth piece of the rod of seven parts came to earth, um, all of the pieces of the rod were actually brought there on purpose by a scientist back in the day. It turns out the, the soul of the scientist is the soul that's in the, the robot c- creature. Uh, character in the game, right? So it's his soul. He's actually the one who who caused all of this uh, by bringing the pieces of the rod there as a as a th- theoretical sort of infinite power source, cheap, infinite, clean power source. Uh, but this was the only location where they cu- they uh, successfully captured and harnessed this piece of the rod. And so Berlin is still fully functioning, where the other ones like tore holes in reality. Uh, and so they, they are called in by the, the Duke of Berlin is like, who are these strangers? What's going on? I need to make sure this is safe. And it turns out the Duke of Berlin is in fact, the missing Gronf Bainray. Hmm. Uh, so when he ran away, he ended up, you know, going a little crazy and ended up in Berlin and is like, well, I might as well, you know, protect the place while I'm here. Right. Uh, because it's, it's home and there's a lot of potential here for me to take advantage of it because they have power. Uh, and so they met Gromf, and Gromf gives them access to the the location they need to go to. It's basically, I described it as basically a giant, like, uh, imagine an indoor uh, football stadium with the big dome and stuff over it. Um, and so they, they, one of them, through things that happened like months ago in, in uh, a vision, knew the passcode to open the vault door to get inside. Uh, and then what they found is that there were a series of extra dimensional spaces they had to get through before it opened up into the inside of the, the big dome space, uh, which was inspired actually by uh, a Dresden Files book that I read several months ago, um, where they had to break into a vault that was, and there was like, you know, the, the room full of, of fire and then the room full of whatever, right? And they had to pass through these sort of these trials in order to get to the actual vault. And I thought that's a neat idea. So I stole it. As good DMs do, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they finally get to the inside. It's this, you know, the, the entire inside of the, the stadium dome, whatever, is, is emptied out. Like, there's no bleachers or anything. It's all just big open space. But there's, like, a field inside of there. And in the center of this field are the ruins of this temple, which is straight out of the Rod of Seven Parts. It's the, it's the forgotten temple from the Rod of Seven Parts. Uh, it, and it turns out that the... Um, the way to so there is a pocket dimension mirror of the ruined temple uh, in this pocket dimension that you have to go through a, a gate to get to and then in that in the pocket dimension it's still fully formed and, and functional and there's creatures there and whatever but the ruined one is, is in ruins and there's nothing there really they run into like a thief who snuck in or whatever who it turns out they don't know this yet is one of the agents of the queen of chaos who was there trying to, to sneak in and infiltrate but he didn't have the means to get in through the gate because the key to open the gate is having a piece of the rod of seven parts. And the party has all of them, <laughs> all but but this one and, and the seventh one, which they don't know yet, is actually with Miska uh, on Pandemonium. So uh, the character who's holding the rod of seven parts, that well, which is now the rod of five parts, uh, walks through the the gate into the the you know courtyard area of the temple and disappears. 
And everybody else is like, oh, what happened? And so they follow behind and it doesn't work. And so we actually split the party. Like he's like, well, they either can't come or they don't want to come. Either way, I'm going to go ahead and explore on my own. So, so he didn't bother to go back for them. Uh, until he finally ran into a fight that he didn't think he should probably handle on his own. And then he ran away <laughs> and came back. So they went and explored the ruins of the of the temple, which actually ends up being useful to them later because uh, in the ruins of the temple, you can discover like little secret passages and what whatever that are concealed in the fully functional one. So they'll know where the secret passages are. I need to actually draw them out a whole map of the like the first two levels of the dungeon or of the the temple because they've explored the ruins of it and they know where a lot of the things are so um so yeah so the, and that's that's where we ended up having to stop because we ran out of time next time they will go th- into the actual temple um and get the last part of the rod uh which is interesting because it's currently being held by a pit fiend because the devils don't want to see you know miska and its chaos escape either because hmm. you know devils are not about chaos right um and so it's got this pit fiend has it and it's another one of those situations where the pit fiend is not necessarily opposed to the idea of giving it to them as long as they're going to use it for a good reason you know so i'll be curious to see do they take on the pit fiend or and and just assume it's going to be a fight and kill it and and try to run away with it or do they actually like talk to the pit fiend and and um you know Convince the convince it that they're going to do something that it wants with it, and let him just give them the rod piece. And then after that, they leave, and the the spider fiends, the the agents of the Queen of Chaos, um, attack because that's why that one was there, right? It, it now it knows they're there, and it it lays in wait to to spring an ambush on them when they return. Uh, so that's what'll happen next. My only concern, and I know I'm out of time, but we all go over time. Uh, <laughs> so my only concern is that if they end up parlaying and and convincing the pit fiend to give over the piece of the rod relatively quickly which they could and then there's the one encounter with the the spider fiends which i want to start amping those up as a threat because they've sort of just been sprinkled throughout the campaign but that's the direction we're going for the end game soon um that could all like that whole exchange could take like two or three hours and we run six hour sessions the events that take place after that are the giant demon lord battle royale in in the the ice cavern right um i feel like that should be its own session right i should assume that that's going to take a long time just in case it does Mm -hmm. so so i'm kind of curious how do i take my like two or three hour potential next session and have material ready to like stretch like what can i do to sort of do the because like this is the kind of thing that happens in movies and in novels, or whatever. Like it's the calm before the storm. They're doing the prep. They're doing all these things before the big battle royale ritual and whatever. Um, but what can I do besides just, hey, what do you do? You got some downtime. Because they don't really have downtime other than what they want. Thoughts? I, I, I don't know that I would game it too much. I think I'd let the story go where it goes. And if the battle royale starts, it starts. And you'll probably find an interesting place to stop to let it continue into the last session okay but i don't know that i'd pad it out okay so let it start yeah why not all right that that just requires more prep and i don't have a ton of time before well tough (laughs) tough all right because i have boy do i I have a book to sell you well (laughs) except you can yeah your lazy dungeon master ideas don't help me like print out the stat blocks for all the demon lords and do all that kind of stuff let me ask a a question there why are we printing out stat blocks (laughs) 
because it, it, did, did you buy a forty dollar book that has stat blocks in the back? Right, right, right. So, so <laughs> here's the way that it is suggested that you run the battle royale, and I know, I know, you never got there, um, because it's all the demon lords fighting each other, and it would just be a lot of, and then the PCs are mostly yeah. sitting around watching. Um, it would mostly. Yeah, it would mostly be a lot of the PCs just watching the DM play a game against himself. And so the recommendation is you give a copy of the stat block for each of the Demon ah. Lords to different players, and they play the Demon Lords. That's pretty cool. Yeah, so I think that'd be fun, but I, that means I need to do that, and my printer's broken, and I don't have time. <laughs> so. Mm. so it's a thing. Well, I can't help you with your broken printer. I know, I know you can't. <laughs> <laughs> go, go bum one off work like everyone else does. Yeah, I, except, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't. I'm a grad student. The, at the tone moment, show so. does yeah. neither uh, condone nor <laughs> suggest <laughs> that. We... <laughs> um, you could snapshot them and put them on whatever mobile device they have. Yeah, I could do that. They could. If do you have D and D Beyond? Yeah. And do they, do you have this adventure in D and D Beyond? Yep. So you can. They can look them up. They can, and they're all on the campaign, so they could all just look them up. And then yeah. I have to then I have to be sure that they get the right one because the uh, as we I think we've discussed before the out of the abyss um, stat blocks for the demon lords are more powerful than the Mordenkainen stat blocks. Yeah, and I think they updated, and I don't think there's I don't think they're, um, I don't know if they're the same in D and D Beyond. I think if you look up Demogorgon, it's Demogorgon, but I don't know if it matters that much. I don't, they were they were not major changes. I don't think. And I mean, if they're, I mean, and, and normally if I was running them and it was a fight for, with the demon lord versus the players. Um, I would follow the advice that you gave me actually a, a few months ago, and I would boost up the difficulty level of the creature, right? Um, but if they're going to be playing them against each other, then I don't really, it's not, a, it's not that big of a deal, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Yeah, all right. So what, you, what you're telling me is that in the next day and a half before I leave for my, my yeah. winter travels, I need to just it, go ahead yeah. and suck it up and get, it up. Get, get, get both things completely ready ahead of time. Sure. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, I guess that's Sam my time then. <laughs> in, unless Sam has better <laughs> advice, that's my time. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, I think that uh, if you don't have a, a printer, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's going toward this battle royale thing that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And, and and it's probably, you know, you can orchestrate it so that it takes a while. Um, just do it through D&D Beyond since that's what you have and that's what you use. That's just make sure it works. And yeah, and I suppose I could always just ask that. one of my players, "Hey, could, could you hop on D and Beyond and print these stat blocks off for me?" I'll tell you yeah, why later, but you know. yeah, you could do that. So. Um, you know, I mean, I I don't see this as a huge game breaking issue that you're having. So you no, know, it's not a huge game breaking issue. It's just something I thought I was I would try to figure out something. Yeah. So all right, very good. Then we will not move on to the next person yet because we want to make sure to let people know that if you want to support the show, 
you can go to thetomeshow.com and click on the links to Amazon or DMs Guild. And if you follow those, you get the exact same experience, the exact same service, the exact same prices, but we get a tiny little percentage, and I share all of that with the people who help make the show possible. Uh, so that is a great way that you can help support the show and let the other, many, all of these people, including Mike and Sam and all the other different hosts and producers that work on the show know that you appreciate them and, and throw a couple coppers their way. So there we go. Michael. Yo. You are next in line. You have 15 minutes on the clock and then you will go about five minutes over. No, I'll, be, I'll stay on time. Quick. <laughs> All right, go. So uh, I'm running my Tomb of Annihilation game. Uh, we are deep in the Tomb of the Nine Gods. I have both of my groups are roughly in the same place. Uh, they have been the, the nice thing about the Tomb of the Nine Gods. The nice thing and hard thing is that uh, they can go wherever they want. They can go up and down and many levels deep. They can go down to the fifth level right off the bat if they want mm -hmm. to, the big stairwell that takes them there, fourth level at least. And uh, But mo both my groups are now in the third level, which is the Halls of Reflection. Uh, and that's where they have to collect a bunch of eyeballs to get into uh, Fight a Beholder. Um, so I'm, I'm having a good time. I, I, did I talk on the last time we got together about the thematic shift of this adventure and like, I didn't know what it was going to be like until I suddenly felt it. Did we talk about that? No, I don't think you did. Or if you did, um, I forgot. Okay, so the the one of the big like, so there there are basically two three major complaints about the adventure. Two of which I think are easily fixed, and one I think is very hard to fix. And uh, and I didn't really know it until I ran it. Right? Like I always think that reviews of adventures are funny because I can't review it until I've played it, and that's like a year and a half later. Right. Um. But uh, so the, the, the three problems are uh, that the death curse is a little too or is too um, uh, harsh, right? Like it, the dial is set really high. And like if you if you play it like the adventure is written, then the characters should just immediately run to the tomb as fast as they can get there and skip all the fun stuff. Well, because yes, people fall I was, over like flies. I was going to say that because that's was my, that was my concern, right? Is, yeah. is that but yeah. but, it, but it's not that it's too harsh. It's that it's, you know, for. For an adventure, for an adventure that wants you to take your time and explore, yeah. it doesn't match. <laughs> so, so in both right. of my games, just laying laying light with that, making it so that like the players might know what it's doing, but the characters don't necessarily know how severe it can be. Mm -hmm. And you can turn the dial and have NPCs that are saying like, "Yeah, it's happening," but you know, we're not all falling over dead. And that gave uh, you know when I by turning the dial back and not having like the one hit point per day loss happening. Uh, it meant that both groups of mine felt free to explore lots of different things. Good. They knew they had to do this, but it wasn't like we got to do it right now. So what, uh, how, how how did you turn it back? What was your dial? I just oh I I didn't have any one hit point per day loss. I just got rid of that part of it. So if, if people get resurrected, they weren't dying. They were they were dying, but it was like a slow disease. Okay. And it's all in story. It's it, not. It, a it, they they were dying at the speed of, of narrative. They were dying at the speed of narrative. And yeah, then it, and that and that's that's the way to handle that problem. That's why it's a relatively easy problem to, yeah, to right. deal with. Because yeah. I I did a similar thing. Yeah, Teos Abadia I think also wrote a whole like how to handle the death curse mod um, you know modifier mod mod I guess it's like a module, you know, a, a, an optional set of rules that you can run that has lots of different ways to handle the death curse and, mm -hmm. and basically turn that dial. Um, you still have the thing about like well the souls are all trapped there. And people are dying and they're, they're sold. But, you know, the souls are trapped either way. So it, it, it just right. it, it, it made that a little easier. The other problem is that NPCs, uh, a lot of the NPCs can either steer the party the wrong direction or they're really o overpowered and uh, can end up upstaging the characters. Mm. Uh, I've heard people had problems, particularly with Artist Simber and Dragonbait. But, mm -hmm. but there's some 
that can be troublesome. So the key is like read them real carefully. O- only only really introduce the ones that are gonna you know move the adventure forward in the way that you want it to go. And if you have these high power ones, have them come in and leave fast so that yeah. In my vision, I I would have Artist Simber and Dragon Bait show up, but only be there for like a session and a yeah, half at like most. They don't join know? the group, right? Maybe maybe they're there, but they're not really there. And they're like, yeah, we're well, sorry, we're not joining your group. We got our own shit to do. Yeah, yeah. we just wanted See, to join my, you for this my, one thing, and now we're done. Bye. Yeah. My solution was they're they don't even they're not or, even part of it or they don't even show up. Yeah, I yeah, didn't have them show up at just not and it was yeah. not a problem. But knowing that ahead of time was easy. But the hard problem that I I don't think there's necessarily an easy fix for, and we can talk about that now, um, is that the theme of the tomb of the nine gods mm-hmm. is very different than the theme of the whole rest of the adventure. Yeah, and, and in particular, you spend you know in my case a year going through or close to it, you know, ten months or so. Uh, doing a f- deep, fun jungle exploration with lots of interesting character development and lots of story arcs and everything, and then you go in the tomb and you die literally to the press of a button. Right, and it becomes a, it becomes a a, a true death trap, a, a death and, trap mega dungeon, right? And we and 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 I've gotten a bunch of people on Twitter when I complained about this on Twitter. I got a bunch of people like, "Well, that's what it says," and I'm like, "I know, but we don't know. We don't know it till you see it." Right. right. And I and I told my players like I, you know, all my players knew this is a death trap dungeon. We all joked about the fact that they're all going to get butchered. And it still sucks when you press a button in the character. Because dies. you spent a year <laughs> developing the characters. Because it doesn't matter. Right. And so for both groups, I gave them opportunities to like switch characters out so they could have like their explorer group or basically an NPC that they just picked up versus their main character who just gets killed. And they're all like, no, why would we set them aside? We got all the way here. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not going to have our character stay at the door like we just opened the tomb we spent all this time opening the tomb we're going in it's the whole reason we did this and both groups have had a character die and so so i you know i i was thinking like well what are the solutions to this i wrote an article i don't think i posted it yet i'm still sitting on it and pondering it but um it was like one is you know have an optional um uh sort of have an optional group that can sort of head in instead um a friend of mine today that i had lunch with brought up the idea of uh having a separate group of NPCs, you basically stop the campaign and then say, here's a group of NPCs that already went through it. And my thought was, what about the company, the yellow banner? You know, like there's this other group of people that, and whose bodies you kind of see littered throughout the dungeon. Mm-hmm. But see, to me, why not, that... why not run them and then they can see all the bad stuff that happens. And then the other group yeah, goes but... in. It's a little here. See, to me, that doesn't solve the problem because the, the problem is actually that you spend a year or however long getting to the dungeon and then you're just going to set aside your characters and send somebody well, else in. Yeah, right. But in this case, you would basically run, and I don't know how this would work, and I'm, I'm not running it this way, but you would run another group through so they could see the stuff, and then their characters come in. So they so, so allow them to have some meta knowledge. Yeah, right. And that way they're like, oh, man, well, like, we know what the black chest does. <laughs> you know, like, right, so don't mess with that. Guy, see, I, I, I would not, I would not run them. I would, I would not have a separate group run them through them. I would have that... Uh, relayed as like a journal like give them a you know some sort of journal so that when their characters are going through they can look at the journal about this arrow about this area or whatever yeah like and and it doesn't it wouldn't be an info dump it would be something they could use in the game their characters had yeah so they have they have a couple areas where um or there at least one area that i know of where you can see you can actually see somebody else die to a trap like it's sort of an illusion of what happened to the last person that was there. Mm. And they see that like guy steps on the wrong stuff and gets eaten by locusts. And I think there's a lot of 
kind of show that stuff, you know, and it's kind of fun because it sort of brings a suspense and horror. So, yeah, Sam, I like that idea a lot. Like, you know, project the danger earlier, you know, and leave like hints and clues of previous previous groups, maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's and there's, you know, with a little bit of research, there's there's about five areas that are really rough. Well, and Um, there's um, because they can sort of be possessed by the, the spirit of the different nine gods. Right. Um, yeah, the spirits could give them hints in, in other places. So there's a wide variety of different ways you could you could give them hints about how to not just be slaughtered. Right. Yeah, right. yeah, um, yeah. So I think finding out, and I'll probably try to put together a. I, I asked before about like what are the deadliest rooms in this? What do we have to worry about? And I think I'm going to put together an article that kind of says like, "Hey, everybody, pay particular attention to these rooms." And I'm about to run one, which is the uh, the Beholder. Mm. Um, the beholder is invisible, permanently invisible. And, you know, it's like a big and it's in a big spherical or semi-spherical room. And um, there's like a whole fake beholder that they think is there, but it's not really. And then there's some magnetic thing that also screws people up. So there's there's lots of like stuff in the room. And, you know, what I'm going to do is just not play the beholder particularly optimally. You know, I'm going to I'm going to kind of toy with it. And I think the beholder would probably toy with them. Mm-hmm. Um and, 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 you know, try not to try not to kill people. Um, I think another fun way. So then the thing is, like, yeah, but aren't you taking the teeth out of this dungeon if you if you're if you're playing it too easy? You know, like the, 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 the one in particular and like everybody sort of mentions it is that on level one, there's three chests. And the only way to deal with the chest is get inside them and close them and then turn a key. And then someone hits a button and then you're hit by some terrible thing. And two, two of the three are not terrible. But one of them is a disintegration. You know, they're hit with disintegrate. And it just, you know, it kills people. It killed, right? <laughs> it nearly killed two characters. This is the so, this is the trouble with a death trap dungeon is that I don't mind yeah, taking right. the teeth out of it a little bit because it's not fun. <laughs> so, well, so it would be. I also another way to do this is don't run the rest of the adventure. Just run the tomb. Start with level nines. Sure. No, and and, trap. and, and the, then it's like then it's like tomb of horrors. Then, then it becomes like, oh, it becomes the tomb of horrors, and it's a contest just to see how far right. you can get, and that's that's fine. Yeah. So, yeah, but I, I think that like, well, turning it into necrotic. Anyway, one thing that I'm going to add and I started doing this and I've been having a, a really good time with it is a lot more use of the madness of the madness table and a lot more use of the um, mm. injuries, the, the permanent injuries table. Mm. And so it's like when you're hit by these things, you know, your hand is crushed and it's, you know, you can heal all day long, but your hand is never going to be right again. You know, and I, I like I like the idea of like, there's narrative ways we can screw with the characters that are not death, but show the change that is taking place to them, mm-hmm. which also makes sense from a story because like the tomb wants them to be in pain mm-hmm. and it's better. <laughs> you know, you're not in pain if you're dead. So, you know, losing a hand to the giant, uh, uh, you know, giant blade that slices down from the hallway Um can be a, yeah. another way that they don't lose a character, but like everybody is marked and right. they, and they danger is always there. And that can be, that can be more fun anyway. I think so. I'm having yeah. more, I, I just started doing that in my last session and, and I, I, you know, I'm going all Rob Schwab with it. And I think it's, it's definitely more fun for me. And they are, you know, the narrative is like terrifying, but they, they don't lose a character at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things I did was when they figured out that the, that the, uh, like the the tomb dwarves were sort of going around and resetting things. They 
they started following them. Like I gave them hints that they could, you know, start following. And so they would see these dwarves like reset the traps and like, like check the traps and make sure that they're still set. And every once in a while, the trap would actually kill one of the, you know, (laughs) whatever. And the the party would see it. And so they would get an idea of, okay, well, if we need to be prepared to, to face that particular challenge, right. you know, that, that sort of thing. So yeah, there's, there's a multitude of ways to, um, to give them some, some knowledge, some, some knowledge in character and some meta knowledge about right. that. Right. Um, yeah, but yeah. So. There's a lot of opportunities for like visions and portents and all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Um, Especially, yeah, as you said, with the, with the actual gods that can possess yeah, them, sure. like that yeah. was something I used a great deal of, uh, it, to give them information about the tomb. Right. Yeah. And I'm like my, my Sunday group, the, the group that I run at my game shop. One of the things that's great is like those characters are completely, they're the same character, but they're completely different. So like one guy was a um, Kenku samurai and he was killed by the King of Feathers. And then because he had picked up a cursed idol of Zugtamoy, Zugtamoy basically resurrected him as a shambling mound. And he, in his character, he is still the Kenku samurai, but every time he takes wounds, inside the wound is like shambly stuff. Mm. And, you know, he's got a big hole in his chest. He was shot by a finger of death, and he looked, and he had a hole through his chest where he was hit by the finger of death, and it was all plant stuff. And, like, everyone's like, holy cow, you mean for two months now he's been dead and replaced with this shambling mound? And, like, yep. <laughs> and the player's like, this is awesome. You know, like, <laughs> so, you know, and he even got possessed by one of the trickster gods. He got, um, I forget which one, the bear, the little koala bear one. Um, Obalaka, I think. And uh, Obalaka got taken over by Zugtomoy. So now there's like this Obalaka mouthpiece that speaks to him using the basically the voice of Zugtomoy. You know, so that's fun. Right. And yep. another, another one, uh, he already had his soul. Uh, he lost his soul killed by a hag on the way. And he now has the soul of another guy from 100 years ago or so, a couple hundred years ago. So he's he's all twisted, and it turns out like the the the, the three, um, the the Sone sisters are screwing with his other soul, right? Like, <laughs> so that's fun. And then a third guy got touched by a Sararak. Like he pulled. Uh, there's a maze on a wall, and somebody can get trapped in the maze, and they have to find a key. And you roll a d100 to see which key you pick up. And on a double zero, you get a, a the black key. And he rolled double zero and got the black key. And I was like, that is that is so crazy that something really monumental has to happen. And what that meant is basically a Sarak looked at him and said, hey, this could be a future apprentice. And he mm. marked him. So now the guy has an Aserak hand that casts a crazy Rob Schwab spell from the Blasphemies of Borboalish. And he, uh, every time he drops to zero, he's getting more lich-like. And then at the end, you know, a Sarah could be like, "Hey, why don't you come hang out with me? We can yeah. do crazy stuff together." I think you talked about that guy uh, last time. So, so that, so all like, you know, every and then one other guy died. I had another character who ran into a room full of Bodax by himself and got killed. And <laughs> and that one I don't feel so bad about because he made some terrible, terrible choices. Sure. Um. So he's got a new character now. Um. And I don't know, but everybody's got some craziness going on, and it's fun. Well, so, yeah. It but, sounds like you say you you say you you say you killed two characters, but. In a lot of ways, you kill a bunch more characters. They're just still yeah. walking around, you yeah, know? <laughs> like right? And and it's different when it's like, well, it's still you know, Punchy the Kenku Samurai is still the same character, and there's still has some memories and everything like that. Mm-hmm. But he's now like you know, he's all shambling mound stuff, and they kind of like that they've been changing like that. So the, to me, that's sort of like the curse, 
you know, this sort of the, the, the dark curse of this place is that, you know, you'll totally be transformed at the end. Right on. And, uh, uh, so I'm, I, you know, I want more of that and less of the press a button and someone gets disintegrated. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, I think that's more fun. Yeah. So like, there's a lot of places in the adventure where it says like, take 44 damage. And if you drop to zero, you're crushed and killed, you know, turned into a mush. And I think that's one where you could say, if you, you know, if you roll to zero, then you get a permanent injury, right? If you drop to zero, you'll be still alive, but your foot will be broken and you can't walk right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? And I think there's ways to sort of alter the character without necessarily killing them. Absolutely. Um, I feel like they, they could have written a lot of the effects of some of these traps and rooms in that way they could have said okay if if it's already been really deadly and you're trying to moderate the the issues here you can use the sort of you know have like three levels like like moderate or yeah. average yeah, you know yeah. average dangerous deadly you know what yeah. i mean and they, have like you know three things three levels of danger right they they could have and they didn't so i'm gonna right 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 here's ways right. to handle these things yeah, but and I think we have a lot of I think we have a lot on our on a lot of options, um, mm-hmm. a lot of things we can do. I am going to look through uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord, um, because I bet you there's a whole lot of craziness you can do to characters there. They have crazy madness tables in there. Yeah. So that's anyway. that, that's the game designed by Rob Schwab, who you've mentioned multiple times. Yeah, I know. I'm all about I'm thinking all about his stuff because he's now starting to put out some fifth edition material. Yeah, and it's it's pretty cool. Uh, I'm done and I'm done on time. Well, you're not, but that's okay. Not, did the alarm go off? Yeah, it did. Oh, I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right. We're, I told you to go over it. It's okay. All right. So uh, that's Mike. Before we move on to Sam, I want to remind people, if you don't want to support the show by going to Amazon or DMs Guild using our, our links, uh, you can support us directly as a patron. You can go to patreon.com slash the Tome Show, and you can support the show for as little as a dollar a month. $12 a year, that's not too much. That goes straight into our coffers. And I try to use that uh, those funds to do things to improve the, the show, pay the bills, what have you. Uh, plus, you would get uh, early access to or uh, opportunities to give some tips and advice and to guide sort of where we're going uh, with some episodes and what have you. So uh, that's usually where I go first when I want to get some ideas about what people want to hear uh, or what they want us to do or whatever. So there we are. Uh, Samuel. Yes, sir. You are up and you have 15 minutes and go. All right. So, uh, I am not running D and D lately. <gasps> I know I, I'm still running labyrinth Lord. So I'm still running a fantasy right. game and I'm also running my players through a, a, a very dangerous mega dungeon called I mean, Barrow Maze. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, which I'm, I, talk, I'm, I talked about last time. Yeah. I'm the guy who ran Torg for a month and a half. So that's, yeah, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. giving you a yeah. So, yeah, I know. I know. Uh, but uh, so I, I do want to say that I, I still think even though with the problems that Mike mentioned, and I do agree with his basic assessment, I think Tomb of Annihilation so far is my favorite fifth edition release. Really? Yeah. It's, it's my well, probably my third favorite next to Fandelver and um, uh, uh, Curse of Strahd. Okay. Yeah. See, I, 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 I'm not, I'm not like a huge Ravenloft fan. I'm not a huge Ravenloft fan. I mean, like, I am a Ravenloft fan. I like, it's not like I don't like it, but it's just not one of my favorites. Uh, see, not because of the product, just because it's not. We are different gamers because I think I have it in my bottom like two or three, uh, uh, but, but I haven't played them all either. So, 
Yeah. So I, I, I think it's 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 at least in line with Fandelver. And I think it's it's slightly edged out Fandelver, maybe only because I played it longer. Uh, so I feel like I, ha- I have a more sort of intimate knowledge of it than mm-hmm. I have with Fandelver because it's been a long time since I've looked at Fandelver. Um, I still think Fandelver is, is probably the best starting product uh, for D&D that yeah. I've seen a, maybe since 1980. Um, but so anyway, that aside, uh, so I am running my Barrow Maze game and I, and I have, uh, you know, if you recall, it is a sort of um, an episodic kind of an adventure where I can I can take whoever shows up for the game that night I can take them into the dungeon uh, into the barrows as it were and uh, they can they can adventure around and then they can uh, come back to town and that means that the next time uh, we game everybody who shows up is just heading out from town again so it's possible to leave some players behind and whatnot uh, and I and I really like that way to do it um, but then it has it has a problem and that is uh, if if uh, y- 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 there's this hard way to balance having way too many pa- players show up and not enough players show up. Um, and since it's a more sort of casual thing, it is difficult to gauge until the last minute who all is going to be there. Mm. Uh, so the, la- the last session that I had, we're, we're on holiday hiatus. We're not playing in December. But the last session that I had in November uh, was um, – very uh, deadly and uh, only three players were there out of the contingent that is usually six or seven and uh they kind of got their butts whipped and and then they they basically said you know maybe we should wait for some more players to show up next time uh before we go back because uh, we're we this is really deadly and we don't want to hire any more hirelings we've already got several with us and uh and this is this could become bad because they're starting to uh you know enough enough of their hirelings have have uh died that they're starting to get a reputation so now it's harder for them to get hirelings every time um so yeah that's uh that that's 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 a problem for them uh but uh, but it's still a great deal of fun and i'm still completely in love with barrow maze it's it's just an amazingly easy thing to run and it's humongous and it's fantastic and it's very low prep uh i can i can use all of my all of my friend Mike Shea's lazy DM uh, tips, Yay. Uh, and, and it works. Yeah, so mm-hmm. um, so there's that. The second game I'm running is actually um, Star Wars: Edge of the Empire, and uh, I, I'm just in love with this system. So I, I am running um, a, a published adventure, and I'm I'm at that point where I'm starting to learn the system well enough and I'm starting to feel comfortable enough that I wish I wasn't running a published adventure because, mm. uh, I, I, and for me that that's actually like, it's a, it's a GMing milestone because it means that I, that I'm, I'm good enough with the system to see right. sort of the, the flaws in the published work. Um, and so that's, it's a, it's a problem, kind of a good problem to have, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, the reason I would never like, I would be very hesitant to run a Star Wars um, or similar type of game because I'm so steeped in this type of stories that I'm used to telling that I have a hard time like intuitively coming up with ideas of how that story, how to tell that story, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I, the fact that you're wanting to diverge from the published adventure tells me that you are, if you're me, you're getting more comfortable with the that type of narrative and that type of storytelling and you're prepared to sort of venture off on your own a little bit. Yep. 
yeah, exactly. And and that's a that's a good thing. Um, because what it means is basically next time uh, I run an adventure for this group, it's going to be of my own making, which is mm-hmm. is a lot more freeing, uh, as we all know. Um, but I, I'm in love with this system. It's fantastic. Uh, it is, of course, I'm running Edge of the Empire, so there's really no force component. Um, I'm not running a force and destiny game, so there's not, you know, Jedi running around and whatnot. Um, and because in Edge of the Empire, everybody's kind of this, um, you know, smuggler, mercenary, you know, kind of kind of character uh, you you can actually run sort of a, a heist type adventure you can run a a smuggling get away from the the really evil crime lord syndicate kind of adventure or you can run uh, a sort of uh the, here's a bunch of people in a ship just trying to earn their living and here's some adventures that they run mm-hmm. into um, and any of those work, and the system makes it really easy. And so you can have sort of canon-level Star Wars information happening in the background, but that's not necessarily directly affecting these characters who are just trying to live their lives. So you kind of get the mix of really awesome, like if you get a player who is really into Star Wars and really loves the Star Wars universe, you can integrate things into the game that make it so that that is sort of satisfied but you know you're not playing luke skywalker and han solo and princess leia Mm -hmm. you know what i mean uh so it's it's a really good it's a really good game i really like it um i wasn't sure i was going to enjoy the narrative dice um and it turns out the system is actually a lot crunchier than i had originally thought it was um, partly because I played the beginner box a couple of times, which, by the way, is is probably one of also the best starter games for an RPG. The the Edge of the Empire starter box set, or I forget, did I? I think they call it the beginner game or the beginner box or something like that. It I think slightly edges out the D and D fifth edition starter mm-hmm. set for for the powerful amount of of information in it and the quality of the adventure and the quality of the components. And you get dice, which by themselves cost like 10 or 12 bucks. Um, and the, you know, the box itself is only usually like 25. So it's, it's, it's a really great thing, but I had only run that and it's kind of light on a couple of the areas, uh, that the core book really delves into for this system. So, uh, it's a little more crunchy than I had, than I had conceived of originally when I was running it. Um, so I'm learning a lot, and it's a really extremely fun game. My players have been tasked with finding this ship that has been missing for 20 years that supposedly has a a cargo hold full of uh, really um, uh, valuable components or or actual credit chips or something. They're not really sure. It's it's kind of a uh, a long shot um, rumor that actually has some teeth to it and now they're being pursued by a, a Rodian salvage clan who thinks they robbed them and hmm. uh, a, a set of um, of uh, imperial security uh, officers from the imperial security bureau and uh, so there's l- little elements of a lot of different things going on and and uh, hmm. it's just a lot of fun it's a ton I'm... of fun you know in the, in the last game I ran a uh, player was running he he ran from a control panel across a hangar deck uh, slid on his knees under a, a YT-1300 which is the type of ship that the Millennium Falcon is and uh, shot at a Rodian through an open hatch I mean it's just like it's extremely fun right on you yeah. so yeah. Um, 
have how much other Star Wars sort of fiction have you are you familiar with besides the movies? So I I so I played WEG Star Wars, West End Game Star Wars, way uh-huh. back in the day. Uh, so I you know a lot of the expanded universe stuff actually comes from those products. Okay. Uh, so I'm relatively familiar with those, and I'm uh, relatively familiar with uh, some of the comics. You know, uh, actually, Marvel has been putting out these great uh, collected. Mm-hmm. Uh, God, I don't even know what they. There's actually a name for them. What are they calling them? The trade paperbacks. Uh, yeah, they're 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 just called uh, epic collections. Or the they, the omnibuses, so they, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the omnibus epic collections, and so I'm familiar with a little bit with those, and uh, and of course I read way back in the in the early '90s. I read Timothy Zahn's excellent uh, "Heir to the Empire," mm-hmm. um, and and I I listened to that in audiobook again recently, uh, and it was it's really good. So, I, so I'm sort of familiar. I'm not a ton familiar. Sure, and, and I'm not worried about the the lore or whatever. Just you were describing the the story of what's going on, and it reminded me a little bit of one of the more recent comics um so there was who was it somebody was publishing star wars comics recently with the the new movies coming out um uh-huh. uh and then they just like they just recently like in the last few months they lost the license and somebody else is picking it up and, and mm-hmm. starting star yeah. wars comics again it might have been yeah. marvel was doing it and now it's like image or somebody but something like that happened yeah uh, but something it, happened like in this. any case the point being in the the lando comic that they published it's an older sort mm-hmm. of lando story and yep. and it's a it's a it's a situation where it was like hey you owe us a bunch of money you know in in, in typical fashion um, mm. we're gonna give you one chance one big score to sort of get out from under us and and make a bunch of money for yourself we want you to steal this ship right here uh, and so he goes and steals the ship and they don't know what it is it's sort of, sort of luxury liner or whatever so they steal it they're flying off to wherever they're supposed to go and they discover that it is the emperor's ship and it's full of like <laughs> Sith, Sith artifacts is what's in the cargo hold <laughs> and there's all these other people like coming after him you know so but so that reminded me a little bit of your story right <laughs> so. yeah well that's not what happens here okay. just so... <laughs> uh, but yeah I know it. so the, the reason I'm bringing this up actually is not just to talk about how much I love this this game but there is a piece of this game that I am probably going to port over to my D&D game. Um, and it's called the obligation mechanic or the obligation rule or whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it. The, uh, basically, it's called obligation. And every character in Edge of the Empire has obligation. And it's it can be – you know it, it's um, things like uh, – uh, the, one of my players, his obligation is that he's a Mandalorian human, and uh, the Mandalorians are really into reputation and family names, and his family name it has been dirtied. So his family name lost his reputation. So his obligation is trying to figure out a way to get his family name redeemed a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my other players, her, she's a doctor, and while she was off in medical school, her uh, her family w- was framed. One of her brothers was framed, uh, and so uh, her family has uh, a couple of members that were arrested, and uh, then the rest are – they've scattered, and they're being sort of hunted uh, for these various reasons. And so her obligation is actually under the category family, but uh, she's not actively seeking them. She's actively seeking a way to clear them and also looking for some of the ones that have now been missing and mm-hmm. so there's so the way this obligation the way this mechanic works is everybody has a certain amount of obligation and 
Um, so like you start out and and for a group of four, like everybody has mandatory five five a level five obligation. So when you add all those up, you get four players. That's a twenty obligation. And at the beginning of the character creation, you can actually um, choose to take on more obligation to get either more uh, points to spend during character creation or to get more money to spend during character creation. And so you can have like 20 obligation or 15 obligation, depending on how many people there are. And what happens is you take and you put all these obligation levels in a chart. And so, for example, for my players, they have 40 altogether. And so the player with the lowest obligation is 0 to 5, and the next player has 15. So they're 6 to 15, you know. So then at the beginning of every session, you roll 100, you know, you roll a D100. And if you roll under the maximum amount of obligation, that means that during this session, one of the player's obligations is going to be triggered. Hmm. So if, for example, if I roll a 03, that means that first player whose obligation is the 0 to 5, their obligation is triggered this session. So during this session, that player is specifically preoccupied with something to do with their obligation. So mm -hmm. either they got a message from someone or someone is hunting them down mm. or something happened that caused them to be at the forefront of – so it, it almost reminds me of 13th age where at the beginning you try to figure out, yeah. okay, who is the most important icon or who's the icon that's going to be the one that affects the session the most. But in this, in this system, it's, uh, it has a mechanical effect. So if your obligation gets triggered, you take a strain, which is a sort of a mental hit point almost. Um, and that affects how you behave that session, but also it's kind of, within the DM's purview or within the GM's purview to figure out how that obligation is going to be brought up. And because all the characters have different obligations, not everybody knows everybody else's obligation necessarily in great detail. So that means the whole crew of the ship has to deal with that person's obligation, whether it's because that person has a sort of different behavioral pattern this time, or maybe because if there's a bounty hunter chasing you, they're going to be targeting the whole ship. They're not necessarily, you know, going to, you know what I mean? So there's a lot of things going on there. So here, here's the thing about this. This is exactly what I wanted Bond's flaws right. and ideals to do. That's what I was thinking is that this would be a, yeah. a, a really cool way to modify Bond's flaws and, and right. ideals and trait. And, uh, because it, yeah. gives, it gives the DM a specific framework for how to trigger these things and how to make these things important for this session yes. and because it's a mandatory part of character creation it's not optional you it's in fact you do it as part of the very first beginnings of character creation mm -hmm. and so you you know it's it's meant to be a thing where you talk to your gm and you say well here's what i'm thinking for my obligation and you can roll randomly on the obligation table and get just a category and you can try to work through that or you can come up with your own obligation mm -hmm. with the help of your gm to make sure that it fits into the overall framework of the game um and that's and that's really my point is that it has a it's a very specific setup it has a very specific way it works but it ends up having a narrative consequence possibly every session because the thing is if I as the GM I roll really high I don't trigger anybody's obligation that session then nobody's particularly preoccupied by their obligation right so that's no problem like it's it's not something in other words that's like 
heavy on everybody's mind and has a complete mechanical effect every single session and totally screws up your adventure every time because you keep triggering it. Like that, that's not necessarily the case depending on how much obligation people have. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's, it's, it's really what I wanted bonds, flaws and ideals to be, but bonds, flaws and ideals. When I run fifth edition, I end up hardly ever sort of picking on those things and, and figuring out and leaning on those and awarding people inspiration for, for, for playing that out. And like that just, just doesn't happen in my games. And, uh, but in my, in my edge of the empire game obligation, that's something because it's a thing I have to do at the beginning of every session. Mm-hmm. It, it makes it something that I'm thinking about when I prep every session. Like I have to have a way, okay, if I trigger this person's obligation, how do I work this in? Mm-hmm. You know, and so it's part of my prep. It's not a long, it's not, doesn't add very much work, but it's there. Yeah. And uh, so I think I'm going to try to sort of parlay that into my D&D setup when I do prep there. Maybe I'll start my prep with thinking about everybody's bonds, flaws, and, and, and ideals and well, trying to make sure those get become important. If it helps, uh, our friend, the id DM, uh, wrote an article about this in 2014 about using, porting it over to D&D 4E. Oh, yeah? Nice. I, I happened to be searching around as you were talking about it, because I'm like, this is really cool. I want to find the rules so I can use it. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, yeah, he nice. wrote something about it in, back in 2014 uh, about using it in 4E. So. Also, uh, I, well, one of the other things I was looking up while you were chatting to, to clarify, uh, the starter set is called the Beginner Game. Edge of okay. the Empire Beginner Game. Nice. So there we go. Nice. All right. Well, that sounds really cool. I, I, I look forward to hearing um, how that goes because, yeah, I'm inspired. I want to – like I, I try to do a lot of that in my game anyway, like um, bringing in some of the ideas and the, some of the connections that I know the players have had. I try to spotlight different characters at different in different sessions and sort of, hey, this one's going to be about something from your background. Uh, and I, I don't tell them that, but, but it plays out that way on, intentionally and sometimes multiple people and what have you. But – but having it sort of mechanically driven that way and giving them benefits that say, hey, I want to, you know, not only will this benefit my character mechanically, but if I'm going to benefit my character mechanically, I have to be more invested in the story too. Um, right. I think that's that's meaningful and that's that's uh, interesting and an interesting idea. So, cool. Yeah. Any any last thoughts? We uh, we don't have time for your your bonus topic, Sam, because we are no, uh, no. at an hour. Yep. But... No, nope, it's good. That's cool. Last thoughts from anybody? Nope. All right. Then we're going to call Yeah, wait. I have, I have one. Yeah, yeah Sam. <laughs> Enjoy your game and keep gaming. That's my last thought. Absolutely. Yeah. Good, thought. <laughs> Good thoughts for the new year. Yeah. There you go. All right. So that has been the our episode, and we're done. And so uh, I don't know. What do I usually say here? Everybody say goodbye. Goodbye. Yeah, goodbye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs>